Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Now, if you're anything like me and hundreds of millions of people around the world, you have been obsessed with the Netflix show Succession. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it because it is riveting. And we have the absolute pleasure today of having the real life succession, Erin Samueli, onto the show. Now, Erin is the daughter of a very loving and wealthy family in Orange County who have been leaders in family philanthropy and business in Orange County and beyond but also huge activists, a family that really believes in social justice. But the question is, what is it really like to be the heir to that legacy? And when I say legacy, I mean the responsibility of being the heir to that fortune and having, again, the responsibility to understand that privilege and take steps to continue with the legacy of that family. So Erin joins our show today and I'm really delighted about it. She is an incredible human being and I've had the pleasure of working with Erin for a very long time as part of Maverick Collective and also for the Body Agency Collective and the Body Agency. And this is her real life story of succession. Erin, my dear, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I am so excited because I think I've joined the world in currently watching Succession. And this is your life, right? Indeed. Literally, we have taken on solving their problems. We know all the different personalities and the struggles that they have. And throughout the entire show, and I have finished all seasons, I have thought of you. I'm honored. Have you watched it? I have not watched it. It turns out that if you are living in a HBO drama, that also watching the same HBO drama is less fun, actually. Okay. Well, I think you're a very, very good version. I can't liken you to any of the characters. Obviously, there is a female sister. Sure. But she is nothing like you. And you and I have known each other for quite some time. You were 21 years old when I met you. And what was very exciting about that is you were a brand new wannabe social justice hero philanthropist. And we plucked you out of this incredible family who has also a great history of having social impact and supporting various charities and organizations that are trying to make this world a better place. I actually want to start by learning a little bit about your life. And you're part of the Samueli family. And you grew up with incredible parents. I have met your father, but I have met your mother, who is just one of a kind. Absolute best person I know. Amazing, amazing woman. And I can imagine that's why you've turned out so good, honestly. What was it like growing up? Because you were a baby when the family started to become really successful. Correct. So talk us through the first decade or two decades of your life. Sure. 
I'll start a little before I was born. So I am the youngest of three daughters. My older sisters are eight and nine years older than me. And when they were born, my father was a professor at UCLA. My mom was a first generation computer scientist at IBM. And they lived a really standard middle class life in Southern California. And part of being a professor is also publishing research. So my dad was publishing research and working for the American military contract in order to develop technology for them. And kind of at the right place at the right time, he stumbled upon the technology for the high-speed computer chip and as such fundamentally changed the world as we know it. And he was able to take that technology and start a company with it called Broadcom. And that company went public right before I was born. And so my parents came into this new money concept mere months before I came into this world. Mm -hmm. So my older sisters got to experience a taste of very standard cookie cutter life. I didn't. I came into the world with a security detail, essentially. Wow. I never knew it was strange until I came to empathize with other people's experiences that weren't mine. Mm -hmm. And as a silly aside, something that's common in my upbringing was just having random people in my house all the time. Yeah. Just like they're coming to work on something. They're coming to do. I was very used to it. And then I got married and my husband was like, what do you mean there's going to be people in our house all the time? That sounds awful. Yeah. I was like, oh, right. That's not a normal thing that people go through. My parents had a moment of new money tomfoolery, which is always like a cute part of my childhood. I was a little young to really experience the chaos and fun of that, but my older sisters got a little bit of that. Like a private jet? Like lavish parties, like that kind of a thing. Champagne on a Tuesday afternoon just because with the rich friends. Well, I do that. I don't have any money. (laughs) Fair enough. For my very straight-edge parents, that would be fun. Like, look at us go. If I may say, if you look at your mom, and I adore her, as you know. She's the best. She's absolutely the best. And she's also, and I mean this in the best possible way, a little bit of a hippie. Yes. I'm gorgeous and hilarious. But she doesn't seem like a rich person. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't come across that way at all. I totally agree. Yeah. And good spot because she totally was like a hippie in the 60s at Berkeley, like 100%. I'm sure. Absolutely leading all the sit-ins and doing it all. I wonder the impact on her when she went from that to sipping champagne in the afternoon with the ladies. It doesn't seem like her to me. It does not seem like her at all. I won't go into details, but my mom can have a bit of a wife streak in her. Mm-hmm. And if you want to party, my mom's going to party. Gotcha. Okay. Note to self. I remember that. In an iconic way. Seriously, take yeah. her up on that at some oh, point. Yeah, yeah, she'll yeah. show you a good time. Okay, good. I'm in. So she really got into like a party moment when I was young and I didn't really like get to do that with her. And I'm honestly jealous because uh-huh. I should take her up on it now. Honestly. Yeah. You're in your twenties, honey. It's not like you're up right. the hill. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's still time. True. Right at the beginning, they had this fun streak. But as a companion to that, there was 
always, always, always this push towards philanthropy. Yeah. It was always part of the conversation. So the very moment that my father became wealthy, he was already thinking about how do I return this to my community? And both of my parents, but especially my father, grew up with this Jewish ideal of tzedakah, of giving back as a huge core value Mm -hmm. of what he believes in. Mm -hmm. He was the son of two Holocaust survivors. Mm. And coming from a family that had to sacrifice so much and had to rebuild from literally nothing in a new country. And have their dignity taken away. Correct. Yeah. Did you meet your grandparents? No, they both passed before I was born. Oh, I'm sorry. But in the Jewish tradition, you named your children after great people in your life that have passed. So I'm actually named for my paternal grandparents. Wow. My father's father and my mother's father. So my father's father's name was Aaron. And my mother's father's name was Sydney. So my name is Aaron Sydney Samueli. Ah, that's adorable. So I carry them with me. Yeah. So coming from that lineage of such heartbreak, he knew that if he made something of himself, that he had to return it. Mm-hmm. So the family foundation was started just a couple of years after the wealth was generated. It's now been around for 25 years, maybe 26 this year. It has been a core value in my upbringing, regardless of the conversation. It doesn't matter what we were talking about. It was always, what can we do to make our community better? What can we do to give back? What can we do to remind ourselves that the money that we have doesn't impact who we are? And if it does, it should only do so in a positive way that has integrity. And that was always a really deep, core value of my of my upbringing. So your mother has said in the past, Susan, I think giving gives more back to me. She has said that. And how the foundation has been set up, you invest in sustainable innovation to make this world a better place, which I think is absolutely brilliant, by the way, because as you know, I don't believe in aid I don't believe in putting a Band-Aid on. I believe in looking at solutions, whether they be through the private sector or civil society that can be made into sustainable programs. Now, traditionally, your family's philanthropic investment has been local. You have both with your for-profit investments through the family office and your philanthropies, they have focused on the Orange County region. You, however became interested in what was happening around the world. And that's when I came in and we invited you to join the Maverick Collective. And you were, at the time, the youngest member. You were 21 years old and you decided that you would choose a program that was in Ethiopia to go and explore and learn the ropes and become a skilled philanthropist and advocate. And you were just completely open to learning. And thank you, by the way, for having that trust in us, me specifically, to have you go on that journey. I really appreciate it. And your trust has continued over the years. So I am thankful for you. Talk us through that process because you committed, I think, over a million dollars to the program. What was that process like with your family in getting them 
on board with, it's a large amount of money for the younger sibling to invest. Sure. And secondly, you were going off to Ethiopia on your own with us, but still, what was the process like? Well, something that is important to note as kind of an aside here is when I was 15 years old, I decided I wanted to be a science teacher. Uh And I made that my absolute North Star. And everything I did from that moment forward was pushing me towards that singular goal. And it was a beautiful goal. And I was a middle school science teacher for a number of years in San Francisco. When I met you. Yes. And it was such a beautiful part of my life. And I'm so glad that I did it. But science teaching and philanthropy are not the same. (laughs) Very different career paths. And so my mom really wanted all of us, all her daughters, to be involved with philanthropy in ways that we cared about. But she knew, my father too, they both knew that unless we cared about it in our core, it wouldn't be authentic. And if it's not authentic, there's no staying power to it Mm -hmm. because they wanted this to be the next step of their legacy that exists beyond their own lives. And so my mom had spent a lot of my young adulthood finding ways to get me excited about philanthropy for me in ways that are just important to me. And it doesn't matter if they match up with what my parents' views on it were, which is a big departure from first-generation philanthropists. And very rare. Very rare. Very rare that a family would both put trust in their young child, right, which you were, and push them to find their own pathway because traditionally what happens is you take on whatever the foundation has decided to do and that's what you stick with. Correct. And there is a massive barrier for people like you in families. They're not interested in what their grandfather or their father or the mother has done. They want to do their own thing. So please continue with the journey. I always take a moment to really emphasize the gratitude that I feel for the trust that my parents had in me and coming to me in ways that really felt authentic to myself, because that is really rare. And so it was actually my mom that found Maverick originally through a colleague that she knew. She had heard about the breadth of projects that Maverick Collective supported throughout the global South and that there was an education component Mm -hmm. potential Mm -hmm. in those projects. Mm -hmm. And so she knew that she was going to have an in with me if she came forward with education, because that's what I cared about more than anything. Knowing that beyond anything, she wanted me to be involved, but she wanted me to be involved in my way. I took a meeting with Colleen. Remember Colleen? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. How could you not? Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. It was actually up in San Francisco, which is where I am currently, funny enough. And she's still there. She's now back there in San Francisco. So fabulous. (laughs) I met with her. I heard about Maverick. I heard about the potential and I knew nothing about philanthropy at the time Mm -hmm. because it wasn't science teaching. So I didn't know about it. And I was really astonished by how different it sounded than what I thought philanthropy was. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is Maverick flips the traditional philanthropic model on its head instead of saying, what do the donors think is a good intervention? Two, what do the people who are asking for an intervention actually want? It's interesting that that was your takeaway because when we started Maverick, we had really studied the gaps and the barriers of how to engage new philanthropists in this work and not just take the money, right? Yep. Which, of course, all organizations want, but it's just not very smart just to take money, right? Because there's so much more potential than the money 
it's the person. I always said it's people who change the world, not just money. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that that was your takeaway. And then we went on to find a program that had education interlinked around sexual reproductive health, right? Yeah. So I signed on to the project. Sometime after that meeting, my mom was thrilled. She was so excited that I had found a way to engage in this work that felt native to me. I was also about to start grad school at the time. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't in a place where I had a ton of free time or energy to be like leading a project. Project, but Maverick really gave me the opportunity to engage in any way that felt appropriate, given my constraints on my schedule and my timing. And that was also important to me. So I embarked on this project with the Ethiopia team that still to this day is one of the most incredible groups of people I've ever met in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And we embarked on a journey to find a way to bring comprehensive reproductive health education to young people in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And I was initially flooded with questions around what is the appetite for this in this country? And what is the cultural context in which this makes And what ways are we going to engage that is not just me being an outsider saying what I think is best for a group of people that I don't know the lived experience of? Mm. And I quickly learned that the human-centered design process, which is what Maverick uses to design their interventions, was the exact opposite of that. And I Mm. even took a course on the human-centered design process Mm. as Mm. kind of prescribed by Maverick. And I learned that the only thing that would come out of that project is something that is explicitly desired by the population that I cared about. Yep. There has to be demand. Has to be has to be demand. Actually, I was sitting in the DC PSI offices all Mm. those years ago, and someone told me a story, and I repeat that story all the time. Mm -hmm. And the story is, they were talking about a very early PSI intervention about bringing a well to a community in Africa. I'm sure you know the story. Yes, very well. (laughs) And the people who wanted to bring water to this community said, hey, here's a well. It's right in the middle of your community. Enjoy. Have all the water that you want. Because the women of the tribe would walk hours and hours every day to go and bring water back. Four hours. Four hours for their family. Mm -hmm. And so they put the well in and none of the people used the well. None of them were interested. The women continued to walk four hours a day to get their water. Mm -hmm. And so the people who were intervening basically said, what's going on? Why are you not using this resource that makes so much sense? And all the women said, why are you trying to take away my me time? Why are you trying to take away the time that I spend with my dear friends that I care about? Culturally relevant. Absolutely. It gets Mm -hmm. me away from the doldrums of my life and it keeps me happy and joyful. And why are you trying to remove that from me? Mm -hmm. And that lesson not only was significant for the PSI team and how it implicated all of the work they would do beyond then, but really stayed with me and really reminded me that I don't know anything about someone else's experience, even if it looks so obvious from the outside looking in. And if I cannot claim to know anything about someone's experience, then the last thing I can do is pretend I know how to solve their problem. And do you think going and seeing the project in person was helpful to you in a really meaningful way of being able to come back and both tell the stories and also engage others, like your family? Luckily, again, I did come from a place where I didn't have to sell it to my family, which I was lucky with. 
So they were already on board, which was helpful. I think my experience in going to country had less to do with my ability to explain it to others and more to do with a deep connection that I got with the people there that was really valuable to me. There's one thing about the Ethiopian people that I engaged with that shook me in the most positive way is when you speak with them and you say something that strikes them in a certain way or is poignant for them, they make a gasping sound. And initially when they did it, I was like, what I say? I'm so sorry. But I came to know that that was just their way of like letting me know that something I said meant something to them. Mm-hmm. And that sound now is so connective for me Mm -hmm. and so beautiful in knowing that I said something that caused this person who doesn't know me at all to feel things. Mm. And the connection I felt with that group of people, Ruth is the leader of my project in Ethiopia. And there was a gentleman named Dr. Andale who switched offices and is no longer in the Ethiopia office. But speaking with both of them and learning about their vast levels of expertise, way beyond me, who was a 21 year old who barely knew anything about anything besides science education and having deep emotional connections with them and saying things that they felt and had poignant connections with them was one of the most valuable experiences that I had had as a young person Mm -hmm. in broadening my expanse on what community can feel like and what it can look like. And that was valuable. Now, Ethiopia is one of the poorest countries in Africa. I have been many times myself, many times, and you're absolutely right. The people are just beautiful. I mean, I've never met an Ethiopian I didn't like. We have a large community of Ethiopians here in DC, actually, Mm -hmm. and I just love them all. But it's very, very poor. And I actually remember going to that market. I can't remember the name of it, but it's Mm -hmm. in Addis. And it's just knee deep in mud. And people live in little shanty huts. And we actually ended up visiting sex workers who their kids went under the bed when they had to entertain a client. And it just really stays with me. And then you get back on our planes and we come home and I always get a horrible feeling of white savior syndrome Mm -hmm. because we are privileged human beings. We were born in the right country and we go back to our incredible lives. How did that affect you? You know, it's interesting that you asked that because that trip took place before I made my own reckonings in that way. Mm -hmm. And before I came to that understanding of the immense privilege that I had, obviously, I knew I was privileged in the wealth department, right? That Mm -hmm. was totally undeniable. But in terms of all of the other ways that I experienced privilege in my life, independent of that, and just the concept of white saviorism and how so much of philanthropy, especially global philanthropy, is that it is. It wasn't something that I had reckoned with at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until actually later that I was in grad school and I was getting my master's in education. And we had a large cohort of people in my program, a very small number of whom were Black and a slightly larger number of whom were Latinx. And that group of people basically took over my grad program for three days and educated everybody on the ways in which my grad program was actually a deeply racist program. And they sat us all down 
down and we did activities for three straight days about the ways that we had engaged in anti-Black behavior Mm -hmm. and who we listened to versus who we didn't, what classes we took seriously versus what we didn't, the body language that we would exhibit to certain people. And especially given that my grad program was trying to do its best given anti-racism, we did talk about it. It was a part of the curriculum. It was something that we were talking about in a way that maybe not even all grad school programs were. But to know that it's not only that it was not enough, that it was also perpetuating harm, that felt like a big parallel to the philanthropic complex in the global South. We're trying our best to make positive change. We have every best intention in the world, but there is a missing piece of knowledge where because we don't understand the micro things that are happening that are creating inequity, because we don't understand the body language with which we talk to one person versus another, because we don't understand who we listen to in a serious way versus who we pay lit service to, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until we can understand that fully and come to the realization that everybody has biases within them, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you evil. It just makes you someone that is in need of learning, which every person is in need of learning. It doesn't matter who you are. That's really what made me come to understand this concept of white saviorism, Mm. this concept of coming from my high horse with my privilege and saying, I know what's best, so I'm going to deliver you this intervention. And that's what taught me that not only is that disrespectful, but it's not ever going to get you actively positive healing solutions. And I'm loving that you're saying this because I really hope that other philanthropists of any age will listen to this podcast and understand that what you did was you were willing to listen and learn and understand and then form your own plan in your head of what you wanted to do, right? And I think you're, what, 26, 27 now? 28. 28. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But the fact of the matter is, Erin, you are the inheritor of this vast fortune. You are the person. You already know you're the heir. You are going to be in a position, and we don't know when, God forbid, it's a long time away, but you are going to inherit all of this money. And you are going to be responsible for the company and also the philanthropy. I feel very blessed to be part of that journey, honestly. And you are exactly the sort of person that I want to work with, your values, how you are, how you turn up, what you believe in. I can see that it's real. And I hope that your experience can rub off on other people and also learn from your experience because I know, and I've said this, other families are not conducting themselves in the way that your family has conducted. And a lot of people in your position reach this age or maybe a little bit older and suddenly they're faced with all this wealth and they don't know what to do, right? Like that's a problem. But you are being educated and given the opportunity to do this. You recently have left your educator profession and you had a stint working within the foundation, which was great because I think you got to learn a lot of things. You have also recently joined the Body Agency Collective. 
and you are an investor in the body agency. So again, you're following in your family's footsteps of really investing in innovation and entrepreneurs like myself that have a vision and are developing sustainable ideas. And you have told me that you really are bothered about the injustice of this world, gender inequality, LGBTQ, abortion rights, just human rights in general. But you're also willing to take on the controversial stuff. You are a sex-positive individual that believes that everybody is entitled to the same things, whether it be pleasure or health products, services, education. Wow, you know, it's really all I can say. (laughs) It's pretty incredible what you've done and incredible that your family has empowered you to do this. What would you say to another 20-something-year-old who's in the same position as you and perhaps has not been afforded the same guidance and acceptance that your family has given you? What a big question, right? There's so many wealthy families in the world, especially in America. And the only thing... There's no shortage of money. The only thing I know for sure is that none of those families are the same. That is the only thing I know without a single doubt in my mind. And each family is going to have to engage in these conversations in ways that look unique and different to those families. Mm -hmm. There's a few things buzzing around in my mind. One, you do need a level of flexibility with the powers that be. That is step one in order to engage in authentic conversations. Doesn't need to be the same amount of flexibility that my parents have afforded me, but there needs to be a willingness to have frank conversations. If you cannot have real and challenging conversations with your family around these topics, you will not make progress around these issues. Right. Can I ask a very quick question in between? Yeah. Because I will forget. The conversation about money is so hard for most people, whether you've inherited it from your family, as in way back, whether you're old money or new money, it's a horrible subject. I don't get why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to talk about money? It's just money. I have a very spicy answer to that question. Okay, go, 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 go. I believe it is so hard to talk about money because the people with money in this country and globally do everything in their power to make that an uncomfortable conversation. Because if it is an uncomfortable conversation, then people with money get to keep it. And if it's not an uncomfortable conversation, then people are going to start asking challenging questions. And we might have to reckon with the deep inequity that exists as how money is distributed in this country and in the world. Mm. That's one of the reasons why it's such a norm to not speak about your salary. If people got paid equitably and there was not disparities by gender or race or discrimination lines, period, it wouldn't be weird to talk about salary. It would be super normal. But if I, as a woman, speak about my salary with a man at the exact same level in my organization, I'm going to learn something really challenging. And I might have a desire to bring that up with the boss and cause some issues and make a stink Mm. because it's injustice. There's no reason that women should be paid less than men. There's no reason that black and brown people should be paid less than white people. But it's a reality. It's the truth that we live in. And if we poke holes in that reality then the fabric and the strength of that reality becomes in question. And the people who hold the power do not want that in question. I think as a parent, 
Beau. And as you know, I'm a parent to a 12-year-old and I am not a rich parent, sure. as I've mentioned, but I have enough money to spoil my child, sure. right? And I have an only child. And I think as parents out there, whether you are a billionaire or somebody who can afford to spoil their child, we're very concerned about that, right? We're very concerned about bringing spoiled, entitled children into the world. Mm -hmm. And you have not, as far as I can tell, been affected by the privilege and the wealth that your family, you remain an extremely nice person. <laughs> and kudos again to your parents who have obviously done an amazing job at rearing you with all this wealth. But I do think the subject of money and how we spend it and also the cancel culture that is out there. We've talked about white savior. We've talked about the privilege of being an influencer or a celebrity and putting it all out there with our clothes and our social media. And everyone is guilty a little bit of doing that. And it's just not cool anymore, right? Yeah. It's not cool anymore to flaunt your wealth. And we saw that in Norway as well, right? With the Crown Princess and Camilla, who's also a maverick. Learning about Norwegian culture has been really interesting to me because it's not at all fashionable to be wealthy and show it. Right. And it's also even not cool to show that you're a philanthropist because that shows that you've got money. Right. <laughs> this subject of money, oh, it's a podcast all in itself, <laughs> isn't it? Because it's so, so difficult. Now, if we get back to succession... And you have two sisters. Mm -hmm. What are the dynamics there? Because the whole storyline of the HBO show Succession is about these three siblings right. who are all gunning. And it's almost not about the money, right? Because they've got the money. It's about the power. Power. Yep. So how's that on your end? I will bring that back to the way that my parents raised us all. And the overwhelming thing that my parents always came back to is money doesn't make you any different from anybody else. Always. Mm -hmm. One of the main ways that my mom taught me that was we've had a woman work for my family as kind of like a nanny and like a homekeeper. Mm -hmm. Her name is Maria. She has worked for my family since I was one year old. And she's like a second mother to me. She is yeah. such an important yeah. part of my life. And where is she from? She's from Bolivia. Okay. And she was treated as part of my family from the very beginning. And there was never this conversation of like, well, just because she works for us or she comes from somewhere else or because she has less that she's worthless. It was always like, Maria is part of the fabric of this family. Yeah. yeah. And... There's no power dynamic there. Like there is because there's a paycheck involved in all of those things. But my parents did everything they could to minimize a power dynamic where there could have been one in a lot of scenarios. And so I learned that power dynamics are not what brings you safety, joy, you fill in the blank here. Power dynamics are things that exist and you have to reckon with but they should never be something that you strive to be on the winning end of because you don't win if you're on the winning end of a power dynamic. And if you do, it's empty. There's nothing actually fulfilling there. And so I think my parents brought all of my siblings up with that mentality. And so none of us have this desire to power grab. None of us want, frankly, having all this power comes with an unbelievable amount of responsibility and unbelievable weight to carry to yeah. honor and serve not only the people who are benefiting from philanthropy, but also all the people that are employed by my family. Yeah. And if I'm going to yeah. sit at the helm of that, or if my sisters were, 
the responsibility is to make sure that those people live beautiful and fulfilling lives. And that's not an easy thing to do. There's a ton that goes into being a business owner and caring for the people that you work for and making sure that they have what they need to do good jobs, but also to lead their own fulfilling lives. And my middle sister has always had a deep passion for hockey. My family owns a hockey team, the Anaheim Ducks. And um, so she has kind of made, carved out her niche in that space and really found something that not only she can engage in that carries forward the family legacy, but that also just lights her up. Like seeing her mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. hockey, be it a hockey game. She is now the director of hockey operations for our minor league hockey team. And she is going to serve on a powerful committee that kind of guides how minor league hockey league runs entirely. And she is a tiny blonde former cheerleader. And she has espoused a respect for herself within a man's world completely on her own. And she is a total badass. And I am so like honored and proud to be her sister. And that's her power. And it's not at the winning end of a power dynamic. It's because she earned it and because it brings her joy. And my older sister has her family. She has two children that she loves more than anything. And those are her worlds. And that's her power and her joy. And not because that's the winning end of a power dynamic. And for me, I feel so deeply about philanthropy because I have all these big ideas about social justice. And I do believe that I can help guide a tiny corner of the world into a place that's a little bit brighter. And I feel really galvanized to move in that way, but it's never been about being on the winning end of a power dynamic. It's always been about using the power that has been afforded to me in a way to return power to others. Well, you do light up when you are talking about these issues and opportunities and where you say that you do have an incredible opportunity ahead of you, which you know, and it's not going to be easy. My very last question, because we're out of time, is what intimidates you about your future? Hmm. Because I know that you've spent the last few years really understanding the family dynamics, the family company, the family philanthropy. You've really put yourself in whole into that. So you've you've had a little slice of it, right? What scares you? What do you think your biggest challenge is going to be into your future heading up this massive? Yeah. Am I going to call it an opportunity? Yeah. And it is such an opportunity. It's a great question because there's a lot of things that are scary about stepping into this world, right? I think one of the largest things that I contend with as a young woman inheritor is mm-hmm. imposter syndrome. Because I am the next generation of the wealth generator, all I did to get here was be born. You know, I've done great things and I have Ivy League degrees and I've worked very hard and I've earned my keep and all of those things are due their credit. But the only thing I did to become an inheritor was be born. Mm -hmm. And I sit with that with a heavy heart sometimes Mm. because as much as there is immense privilege and joy in the life that I have, and I'm so grateful for it, at the same time, it feels like there is injustice in the life that I have, because why me? Mm -hmm. Why did I get born into Mm -hmm. this world? It was just the luck of the draw. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I wake up with this imposter syndrome, feeling like I didn't earn any of this because I didn't. But what brings me calm 
in those moments is that every day I actually have the opportunity to earn it. Mm. And I can, in my actions and in my conversations and in ways that I engage with others, I can earn this power, this privilege, this legacy, this empire. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. By doing right by my parents, by doing right by myself, and by doing right by my greater community, as guided by my greater community. And to know mm-hmm. that as long as I am acting with the greater interest at heart, and not in a way that's like, yeah, it's for the people who need the stuff. It's like, no, I asked them what they needed, and this is what they said. Yeah. If that's my guiding light, then I know that my fears can be softer. Well, I thank Susan and Henry Samueli for creating you and bringing you to us. I think you're an incredible role model already. I think you have a massive future ahead of you to change the world and impact it. And it really is just the beginning. And I'm blessed to have you in my life. I really thank you for coming on this journey with us and and doing this work. And again, it's just the beginning. So thanks for being on the show. There will be more podcasts ahead of us as we go on this journey. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you giving me a spotlight because girl, do I love a spotlight. There's going to be one. There's going to be a bigger one on you. Can't wait. <laughs> Purple mascara and all. Correct. All right. Love. Thank you. I'll see you soon. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.